from WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station. Welcome. I'm Warren Odestulet, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. Baha'i Perspective is a radio program presenting biographical interviews of people who have chosen the Baha'i faith as a way of life. Today, I'm playing a telephone interview with Calvin Terrell. Calvin is a founder and lead facilitator of Social Centric, an organization he designed to provide education and training for all ages to enhance human interactions and global progress. He's a former assistant director of the National Conference for Community Justice, Anytown, USA, Arizona region. He has taught for Upward Bound at Arizona State University and the Arizona National Guard's Freedom Academy. I started the interview by asking Calvin where he grew up and what was it like growing up there. I grew up in uh, St. Louis, Missouri. I was born in 1971, so my growing up years were the 70s, 80s, and I'm still growing up. But I would also go between... St. Louis, Missouri, and uh, Los Angeles, California. My father, he and my mother divorced, and I would spend my summers and sometimes springtimes out there. It was a unique place. I, I'd say St. Louis is a very racially prejudiced uh, and racist city. There are still very clear lines of segregation in regards to race as well as economics. There was some beauty there. I uh, had some fun as a kid running around but also some very just dangerous situations uh, when it comes to communities where people have been conditioned to hate themselves as well as when they are distrustful of themselves and others. You know, I lost an uncle and friends, uh, and not to natural causes, but to violent crime. Make you grow up fast, really fast, situations like that. So what was religious life like growing up? Well, I was raised Baptist. I would uh, attend Antioch Baptist Church. My mother was actually raised Catholic, but I would go to church with my uh, grandmother, my uh, father's mother. I sang in the church choir and would go somewhat regularly. It was an experience where, you know, we go to the church and there was a lot of singing and a lot of joy and sermons, sitting in a you know a large building and, and listening. It was moving the singing and the experience itself but I I didn't feel like I was really part of something you know I I felt this spirit and sometimes a a welcomeness but not necessarily like I was generating something it was the preacher and and he was a really great preacher did you feel a dichotomy between Sundays and going to church and your life the rest of the week or or did you feel like Christianity was infiltrated in your life growing up? I I actually felt that my grandmother and uh, my uncle and my mom and my grandmother on the other side, I felt they embodied what the the teachings of Christ were. They were very loving. My mother was very open. Here we were in a predominantly African-American community. She began dating a man who was white. There was a lot of kindness and, you know, you do the right thing. Just choices I didn't make and I think that a lot of my friends made 
because they it wasn't that they were necessarily bad people. It was that they just didn't have guidance. And in desperate situations, people will turn to their animal nature. I think their Christian teachings that assisted them, but it, they didn't identify it as, as such. It was just spiritual truths that would just resonate with them and that they would tell me about. And sometimes, oftentimes things that were beyond what I received in church from, and from the preacher, but a, a, a global vision that I think was broader than what I was receiving in the church. That I know that their core, though, those, those teachings are animated by Christ's teachings. When you say a global vision, can you expound a little bit on that? Well, when I would go to visit my father in Los Angeles, just some of their discussions about the world and people and things beyond the community of St. Louis was very, you know, welcoming and viewing the world as people outside of the social construction of race as, as a part of a bigger family and even people beyond various religious ideas beyond that of Christianity were, it wasn't that they were wrong, they just had different understanding. My grandmother, Abernathy, on my uh, mother's side, was very intelligent, did a lot of reading and studying, was not a church-going person, but really an independent investigator at her core, and just knew a lot of things. She babysat me a lot, and she would always just, just share knowledge with me about the bigger world. I kind of just travel the world through her stories. What were your interests growing up? I always had an an interest in uh, flying. I got to go visit my father in Los Angeles and get on a flight, a plane, when I was about five years old, and it just blew my mind. I always wanted to fly in some way and travel, go beyond the space because when I went to California and saw the ocean and just saw different architecture, and it just fascinated me. That was an interest as far as career. But with friends, you know, I played sports, played football, I was a wrestler. I always had a, a keen sense of justice. I, some of the situations, the, the fights in the neighborhood and things that were kind of scary and, and violent that went down, wasn't because I was just, being a thug is because I felt something was unfair, was wrong. And that was my way at that time and my toolkit of, of how to fix it, was to go and do something about it in that way. I love to play imaginary games and just run around with friends. We'd play war. We didn't have any real toys sometimes, but we'd make up stuff. And when I moved out of the city into more of a suburban area, there was a lot of wooded area around, and uh, I would love to just, you know, pretend like I was way off in some far-off jungle or back in time exploring something. What was high school like for you? High school was actually, you know, it was uh, a beautiful and horrible time. (laughs) The the beauty was uh, I kind of transformed. I lost a lot of weight, and I went into high school suddenly was like a different person, if you will, on the outside, became uh, sort of a, a, a commodity. A lot of girls were interested. Uh, a lot of people liked the way I dressed. I was always working on my own since I was sixth grade. I would 
shovel snow or do our jobs to make my own money to buy my clothes. So it was this sort of popular realm, if you will. It was just something that just happened. It wasn't something I tried to do or anything. And also, though, with that came jealousy and, and some hostilities, some negative situations, going to parties and fights, just uh, people that were angry and uh, wanted to hurt you just because they had a perception of you or things that they had been told. And so I really got into some of my classes, but I actually, looking back, I realized that a lot of my teachers were had a really low expectation of me because I was a man of color. My father was a physician. He went to Washington University. He left when I was around five, you know, just before five. He went to medical school. Playing a lot of sports, I broke a lot of bones. And so I knew what an orthopedic surgeon was. I'll never forget when um, one time I told one of my teachers, you know, I'd like to be an orthopedic surgeon when I grow up. And she looked at me kind of shocked. She says, well, it's a big word, Calvin. You know, it takes a lot of school. In that moment, I didn't have the words to articulate it, but I knew she had a very low expectation of me just to my pigmentation and the environment she saw me in. So, Calvin, what happened after high school? So, um, after high school, I was working at the airport in the customs area, international, pulling a sky cap, pulling off bags, pushing wheelchairs, and I went to the University of Missouri-St. Louis, which is focusing on general ed. Also, at the same time, as an audiovisual technician, I set up the VCRs for filming at the school. I was just kind of just living life. A friend of mine named Andre Carpenter, we call him Moody, uh, he was killed at uh, 17, and I was very angry. Kind of had it, started going down some really destructive places. Was hanging out with some guys, a guy named uh, Little Crash is the name I'll call him. That was his street name. It's part of a group called Gangster Disciples. Was just getting trained about how you know we needed to fight and uh, go against the blue-eyed devils that were doing this, because Rudy was killed because he was black. He was killed by a white guy. And uh, I think this guy was involved in neo-Nazi stuff. I was angry, but I couldn't accept the the hatred, accept all the hatred, because I was, I was angry. Because my sister, uh, Stephanie, my little sister, she was uh, she's half white, and I couldn't accept the absolute that all whites were bad. And yeah. so I got into a car with another friend by the name of Andre Young. And uh, we drove from St. Louis to L.A. We just left. We just had to get away from the city. And on that trip, we made a 180-degree turn. Uh, we call it drive therapy now because <laughs> uh, we realized we needed to honor his memory, not just be caught in anger and just had like a really just amazing, beautiful, magical time on that drive. Came back to St. Louis started doing a lot of um, just community stuff on promoting unity and peace and things. And and uh, the next summer was visiting um, in summer of 1991 in L.A. and then drove over to Phoenix with an uncle on a fluke. And I went on a blind date. This night, this woman started talking to me about the Baha'i faith, what it was about, and it was supposed to be just some random blind date. And we really hit it off. 
mentally, emotionally, spiritually, and not physically, which was very different for me since a lot of my relationships were based a lot on just the physical stuff right away, and this was a real spiritual and mental connection. That night was July 3rd, went into July 4th. July 31st, we went back to St. Louis. September 1st, moved to Phoenix, Arizona with only $100 in my pocket. November 21st, I married that woman I met on the blind date. And before I married her, I declared my faith in Baha'u'llah that October. That marriage, we celebrated our 20-year anniversary just this past November 21st. Well, congratulations. I have a couple of questions. What was your initial reaction to the Baha'i faith when you heard it? It made perfect sense. I loved all the ideas and the concepts of oneness of humanity, the oneness of religion, the principles, the independent investigation, all of that made a lot of sense. I felt like I was always Baha'i, and I, this was just the word. But what I struggled with was the, the station of Baha'u'llah. And it wasn't initially, it was when I really started getting involved. The spring, after I declared, I turned 21, and I was immediately elected to, the, to an assembly. So why don't you explain to folks what an assembly is? Well, within the, with the Baha'i communities, there's an administrative order, and you have what's called the local spiritual assembly. It's a, a body of nine people who are 21 and older, who are elected to guide the community and help the community with its affairs. And not just those people that are enrolled or Baha'is, but the entire community. They're, they're responsible for the spiritual well-being of the entire community. And then you have national spiritual assemblies, which are people, a body of nine, that are elected for the well-being of the entire national region that they're a part of. And then there's, there's the Universal House of Justice, which is the highest body of the Baha'i Administrative Order, and are elected. And on all of these, uh, which in, are in charge for the innocence and spiritual well-being of the planet. You were elected to this body? I didn't handle it well. <laughs> it was uh, a lot of just intense administrative stuff right away. And then also I experienced, I went to uh, a Baha'i event and I was expecting, you know, this love and humanity and all of these things. And I ran into the prejudices of the world. You know, I had people clutching their purses and walking the other way from me and speaking to me in, in what I felt was in a patronizing way. Are, are shocked that I would have something to say that was intelligent. Uh, oh, he's, 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 he's so articulate, you know, and I was like, well, why isn't that guy articulate? Because you expect him to be, but you don't expect me to be. What Shelby Finney talks about is subconscious and superiority. And I'll never forget a, a guy named Mike Chenoweth. He told me, he said, Calvin, you know what's the Baha'i faith on the writings on Baha'u'llah, not on the people? I wrote a half-written letter to the National Spiritual Assembly saying I didn't want to be a Baha'i, I felt that this was hypocrisy, and I was upset. And and then my wife told me that if you don't believe in Baha'u'llah, finish your letter. And then it hit me. I was like, well, I do believe in Baha'u'llah. So I started investigating Baha'u'llah and reading and reading the writings. I realized that I was being as judgmental as I was experiencing as well. It just kind of shifted my energy. Did you becoming a Baha'i change the direction in which your life was going? Well, yeah, it led to me eventually. Now, I, what I do is work throughout the United States on race relations, violence prevention, a lot of 
bullying prevention in schools, getting educators to look at concepts of white supremacy and uh, disparities in achievement, subconscious senses of superiority that and inferiority that they hold towards students and how that creates destructive relationships or either constructive relationships. Uh, a lot of work with youth, getting them to realize their power, to step up and be community builders, collaborators. All of this understanding and been very successful with this. Uh, been doing this work with this my own business for 20 years now since I moved to Phoenix because I started doing something like this in this before I moved here but it was really small and now it's just really blossomed and it all comes from the teachings of Baha'u'llah. I, you know, I need to write a paper to actually have my bachelor's in human resources administration. The education that I've received in university and schools, it's a, just a supplement to the spiritual education and the learnings that I gleaned from reading the writings, the high writings, and integrating that into all aspects, not just of my work, but my life. You know, it isn't just a thing I would do over here. It's something that you live. It, it opens us to the higher intelligences and spiritual susceptibilities that when we tap into information that's all around us that we integrate and use in ways that is very distinct and profound to, you know, transform the world. Can you tell me or can you describe for me how your work transformed from being something done locally to it expanding to a more uh, national effort? Everything has been just a word of mouth, really. Uh, it's I, I didn't follow the, the traditional model or any particular uh, formula. You know, I, I'm still building a website right now. And uh, it's just been word of mouth, speaking at keynotes and conferences. I work a lot with law enforcement, civic, you know, workers, child protective services, uh, people in boys and girls clubs, religious community, mostly in education. Forty-five percent of my work, I would say, is with children, kindergarten on up through 12th grade, and then the other 55 percent is with the adults themselves in education. And people saying, you got to get this guy, or you got to get this guy. Just by that, things have really blossomed. Now, what was your first work outside of Phoenix? Well, in Arizona, I mean, you know, I did a lot of work in Tucson and Flagstaff and different parts of the state, Colorado River Indian Reservation, with Native peoples on solidarity, looking at the concept of indigenous teachings and modernity and unity within the communities. Um, but outside of the state of Arizona, I think this would have to be Virginia, Newport News, Virginia. I did some work with the National Conference of Community and Justice there. I did a camp where I took some youth uh, for about three days, three nights, four days, and did uh, an experience about 75 youth from throughout the state of Virginia. Uh, camp on uh, racial unity and gender equity. Calvin, what is your approach that might be unique that is attracting folks to your work? Well, one thing is, I believe I use language that's very spiritual without it actually calling it spiritual. Before I begin any presentation, I always believe in honoring my ancestors, that there were people of all colors, all nationalities and beliefs that came before me, and I say, I may be standing here by myself, but I'm not standing here alone. I believe they're standing with me, and they paved the way for me to be here. 
So in a sense, I'm acknowledging the concourse I'm high. Yes. I integrate a lot of humor. I talk about things. I integrate religious concepts, things from neuroscience or various social sciences, sociology and anthropology. I pull from a lot of disciplines. I integrate that. At the same time, I'm just straight up, sometimes brutally honest. I guess I could put it in this way. I used to fight racism, but now I promote unity. So it's still the intense energy. I'm spiritually militant about it. But the energy is about, instead of fighting, it's, it's really about collaborating and connecting and speaking to people's core, their heart, you know, that their true identity is a soul and that um, all of these constructs around us cheat us out of the, the capacity and splendor of our soul and not just our soul for us as individuals, but what we could manifest interpersonally, institutionally, as well as systemically. I think that speaks to people's higher nature when there is something's coming at them from multiple angles and speaking to their greatness, if you will. I think it resonates within them and, and it draws them into the process. Even, you know, the, the hardest, most opposed, you know, I've had people say, I came in here, I, I didn't want to be here, I was hating coming here, and now I'm so thankful I'm here, and I, I, I want to come back, that kind of thing. You know? For me, it's it's just because of Baha'u'llah's uh, message, you know, Baha'u'llah saved my life. That understanding, that energy that has resuscitated the world, I've tapped into it, and I, I feel I'm, only reason I'm successful is because I, I feel like I'm successful in surrendering to it, submitting you know, as they say in Islam, to that will, being an instrument of it. Is there one project that you worked on that really brought dramatic results oh. that uh, maybe you weren't expecting? One that just stands out that I, I carry with me everywhere. In the 90s, it was uh, late, about 98, school called Acadia Neighborhood Learning Center. I was a little boy at this school. He was from Yugoslavia. This is times during the Balkans War work a lot with people in refugee status. Little kid and talk for a year and a half and sit and draw this stuff. Was at this school and I was doing a workshop for middle middle school students on just bullying and racial prejudice and cliques and just how to be a more unified school. And it was such a huge group and I was working with a, a friend of mine in Christie. And I remember it was about like four hundred kids in this space. And I had them all day, like eight to three, you know, we broke for lunch. And things were going amazing, you know, and I just was able to work with these kids. I do a lot of kinesthetic community building, but also just discussion things as well. And uh was talking about, I did this piece on the levels of prejudice, and I talk about how it starts off with conditioning. You know, we all learn it, so we can unlearn it. Uh, conditioning can even escalate, you know, to words and then actions, even like murder and then, of course, genocide, culture side of war. When I was talking about the peace on genocide, and I was giving the examples of just atrocities throughout the world and what humankind has done and how we're better than this. And I was playing this soft song. It's called La Patricia de la Man, a little girl we see in French by an artist named Vangelis. This little guy spoke. He had been in a rape camp in uh, Yugoslavia where they would uh, rape the mothers in front of their children. And they would make the kids watch to condition them to fear. Some of the stuff that happened was one of the ways the Serbians were getting back at the Muslims because of 400 years of slavery on the Ottoman Empire. And he had the coldest, deadest eyes. You know, I, 
I work with hardcore gangbangers, guys in prison, neo-Nazis, super thugs in the business world. I was a real thug. And uh, this kid's eyes were dead. He spoke. I never forget he called the children of our society brats. He said, we have a good ear, we take it for granted. He said, they were all white, Yugoslavian, and he said, we're many colors here. We hate each other here worse than they do over there. He said, they would say hate to the faces, but here, we say hate to the back. We wear two faces. And he said, what would happen here would make his country look like a cartoon. I spent the rest of the afternoon just holding this kid and telling him horrible stories and what he survived. It was like he just had to vomit it all out and hold it in. And Christy had to take over the workshop. I promised him that I would play that song I had whenever I talked about genocide to honor him because he, he honored me by speaking and by giving himself permission to use his, his voice again. That's something I'll never forget. I have a shirt that I carry with me that's a black shirt. It has a Nazi SS Gestapo symbol in the middle, and it's surrounded with the words, support your local white boy. It's a shirt worn by uh, neo-Nazi groups, uh, Hammerskins and war, white area resistance. They relocated to Arizona because they say it's prime recruiting ground because of all of our, there's just a lot of hate in our state around immigration issues and various things. This was at a camp, and this young woman, when I met her, her name was Ursula, I still remember her name. She uh, wouldn't even talk to me. She would talk to her friend, and her friend would speak to me because she had been conditioned that if she had talked to me, she would be acknowledging my humanity because if she was conditioned that I was a speaking ape, that I was self-human, being a man of color. She would, her friend would talk to me, but she wouldn't, she wouldn't say anything. Sure enough, at the camp, she finally talked to me. She uh, started talking about what her family was into, the training, you know, out in the desert, paramilitary this and that. She said, I know my family's going to kick my you-know-what, but uh, I don't want to be a part of this anymore. And she gave me her shirt. She left it, put it in my hand before she got on the bus. She's like, I don't, I don't want this anymore. And so when I do my presentations and I talk about the idea of a terrorist, people, you know, never fails. They'll say religious group or certain racial groups, particularly someone from the Middle East. And then I talk about how we have terrorism right on our soil. It comes, you know, black, it, it's, it's black, white, and brown. And I show that shirt that, you know, this is a, the oldest terrorist group in our country, you know, related to members of the KKK. So, but we don't think about it that way. And I guess the point is, is if I had acted with, gave up on her and been hateful and spiteful towards her, because I had reason to, because someone like that killed my friend Rudy. But because of Baha'u'llah's teachings, I was able to approach her with love, but at the same time, not with a love of accepting her ways. I, I was a, a peaceful warrior in my approach to her, a spiritual warrior. And I think it resonated, and she reflected that shirt I carry with me, and just to remind people that it's we have to think deeper and go beyond the superficial ideas and and I tell people that this, this shirt, this, this isn't hate. This is a symptom of hate. These guys aren't the problem. They're just fearful. And I say, we're the problem. 
because, you know, we sit back in comfortable spaces and we create spaces for this type of hatred to go instead of actually working in the field to grow peace. If we don't, you know, work to grow the peace, the poison will grow. So what kind of presentations do you do? I could be easily in a, a gymnasium with 2,000-plus kids for two hours or in an auditorium, and they could be high school or middle school students, or, you know, in an auditorium somewhere at a university talking about how the concepts of social or I call systemic justice intersects with issues of the environment or economic situations uh, with a bunch of students or professors or in a uh, school convocation where they have district-wide all-staff or in a training where over five days working with people to design lessons that are relevant to culturally relevant pedagogy is what it's called to certain generation or populations. I could be in a room with 20 kindergartners singing songs from Baha'i children's classes and talking about how we integrate that in the way we treat each other on the playground <laughs> and, you know, mm -hmm. being friends or foes, being helpful instead of hurtful, simple stuff. I sing this song with kinders. It's uh, sticks and stones can break my bones, but hurtful words can crush my heart. Sticks and stones also build homes, and peaceful words is where love starts. They get it. <laughs> Working with cops and looking at community policing, how to be proactive and not just about busting people and examining prejudices they have and how to avoid racial profiling. Uh, working with a group of people in a workplace and looking at how subconscious the concepts around gender, male and female roles affect workflow. Mediation. Flagstaff Police Department killed a kid in a traffic stop and had to do mediation between the police department and the community or out in the middle of the, the desert in a camp, you know, with 75 high school and middle school students and talking about how we can just play nice. I imagine that working with a police department is a tough crowd to work with. They, they are. They, they really are. And, and you know what? They're not the toughest, actually. The toughest group to work with are, are educators, teachers, because they they have the the veneer that they're just you know hey they're they're a teacher, and and it's not their fault. It's it's the the sickness of the industry is there's a great deal of arrogance there that they don't need to know any learn anything else, and it's not all, but there's a lot of that, and I think it also comes from just the pressure of their work. They're just like cops, except. The cops get to feel powerful. Uh, they get to arrest someone. They get to see some kind of completion of their work. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Whereas the educators, is, it's, it's nebulous. They never get to, there's an ambiguity, ambiguity to their, their field. You know, what, is this really doing something? I mean, test scores don't really measure. I, mean, I tell them always, you don't teach math, you teach people. You're teaching to a whole human being. I have you know, locks, long dreadlocks down to my butt. And black guy coming in there, standing in front of me, I'll never forget this one cop said, you look like somebody I need to bust. <laughs> and I was like, thank you for your honesty, you know. And once you just connect and talk to people's hearts, they open up. 
and those guys are usually just fearful. There's, they see the worst in humanity, you know. There's good ones and there's bad ones, I will be honest. There's, there's, there's corruption, but the majority are actually just really wanting to do something good, just like with the educators. But the difference with the educators is that there's, this, uh, there's a different kind of power and this idea of being controlled of the mind. And sometimes in the Baha'i writing, it talks about how our superstitions can become veils. And uh, there's a lot of superstitions and prejudices that veil people to, to possibilities, you know, that block their vision. Yeah, I, I, that's why I thought policemen would be a very tough crowd because, like you said, they see the worst of the worst in humanity. And, and the teachers do too, the educators. Mm-hmm. They just don't get to, they don't get this illusion that they get, that they, they can fix it. Mm-hmm. The cops get this idea that when they get to see the worst, when they see the worst, then they catch that worst, they put handcuffs on that worst, and they put that worst behind a bar, you know? And there's this sense of completion with that. Even if there's a horrible thing that happened, or even if it was an injustice, the wrong guy or gal was caught, there's still this sense of, I can do something. There is a, a shred of hopefulness there. A lot of educators, and it's it's not their fault, it's been their conditioning, but yet I believe their responsibility address, but a lot of educators right now are practicing something I call the faith of cynicism, you know? The faith of cynicism, and here's a prayer in the faith of cynicism. Uh, nothing will ever change. A prayer, a meditation, like, that's how it's always going to be. Why try? Whatever. You know, they give their breath to hopelessness. It transfers over to the kids sometimes. Aristotle said, Ed, teachers should be held higher than parents because a parent can learn to be a better parent from a teacher. So is there a direction that uh, you haven't gone in yet with this work that you see a possibility? Well, yeah, I really have a vision. I'm something I'm working on right now. I'm becoming more systematized. Action in the communities, you know, getting people of various beliefs, you know, be they atheist, agnostic, Baha'i, Buddhist, various Christian denomination, Muslim, Jewish, doesn't matter, to come together for devotionals the study circles with studying, you know, the Word of God and applying that to community building and institute, determining our institutions and neighborhood children's classes, working with junior youth, all of those, the, the concepts, the core of that is really just empowering me to become more systematized with my business. I call, I call my business social-centric. And with social-centric, uh, the vision roused about duplicating what I do. So wanting to train other people to be instruments of peace in the way that I've learned, in a way that I feel is very holistic and nimble culturally, that, you know, in a sense, maintaining an integrity of who we are, but at the same time being an ambassador in various contexts. And so training people to do so, some of, not what I do, but training them to how to design training so that they could design workshops and training for the communities as well as connecting them to the Institute process of the Baha'i Faith, because uh, it's a spiritual battle, and it starts within ourselves. So my vision is to sort of duplicate these successes and have people empowered 
to realize the role that they can play in their spaces of work and uh, and living uh, to be these these kind of instruments of transformation. And then along with that, I, I, there's some books in the process of publishing. I'd like to, I don't know, maybe in the future, open up some type of a definite academy where people can come like a school. But I don't want to do it in the typical way, getting rid of some of those old shibboleths that we've used for years uh, where it's it's a tied into this amount of money or this, but uh, something that it, it, there was this accessibility for all, not just to the most... Uh, financially privileged. If someone asked you what you do, what would you tell them? I help people to recognize their power. I do that by working with children, uh, youth and adults to eliminate prejudices and of all kinds and to promote holistically safe communities mentally, emotionally, socially, spiritually safe spaces for people to thrive and learn from each other. I'm a servant of justice, a warrior for peace, is what I say. Well, I wish you the best of luck in your work. It sounds like it's work that this country and this world needs very much. Yeah. Unfortunately, Warren, I I tell the kids I always put me out of a job (laughs) <laughs> you know, I like to garden and walk my dogs and hang out with my kids. I like to draw. I say, put me out of a job. I don't want that. We shouldn't have to promote peace. It should just be peaceful. Well, Calvin, thank you so much for sharing your story and sharing your work. Thank you for the opportunity. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Calvin Terrell, founder and lead facilitator of Social Centric an organization he designed to provide education and training for all ages to enhance human interactions and global progress. For a copy of this and other interviews, you can go to the website www.abahaiperspective.com. For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you can go to the website www.baha'i.org, where you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you'll join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective. Choice.
cause confusion All wrapped up in our own illusions When will there be a time to love? We have time to condemnation Time for oil excavation Hatred, violence, and terrorism. When will there be a time to love? At this moment in time, we have a choice to make.
want you want you One tribe, one kind, one planet, one race It's all one blood, don't care about your face Color of your eye or the tone of your skin Don't care where you are, don't care where you been Cause where we gon' go is where we wanna be The place where the native language is unity And the continent is called Pangea And the main ideas are connected like a sphere No propaganda to try to up a hand Cause man, I'm loving this peace Man, man I'm loving this peace man, man, I'm loving this peace I don't need no leader that's gonna force feeder Concept to make me think I need her Fear my brother and fear my sister and shoot my neighbor with my big missile. If I had an enemy, enemy. If I had an enemy, enemy. If I had an enemy, then my enemy's gonna try to come and kill me. Cause I'm his enemy. There's one tribe, y'all. One tribe, y'all. One tribe, y'all. We are one people. Let's catch amnesia. Forget about all that evil. Forget about all that evil. That evil that they feed you. Let's catch amnesia. Forget about all that evil. One race, one love, one people, one Too many things that's causing one To forget about the main cause Connect and uniting But the evil is seeding and alive in us So our weapons are colliding And our peace is sinking like Poseidon But we know that the one The evil one's threatened by the sum So we come and try to separate the sum But he dumb He didn't know we had a will to overcome Rejuvenate by the beating of the drum Come together by the cycle of the hum Freedom when all become one Forever One tribe, y'all One tribe, y'all One tribe, y'all We are one people Let's catch amnesia Forget about all that evil Forget about all that evil That evil that they feed you Let's catch amnesia Forget about all that One heart, one beat, we equal Connected like the internet United, that's how we do Let's break well so we see through Let love and peace lead you We could overcome the complication Cause we need to Help each other, make these changes Brother, sister, rearrange this way of thinking That we can change this bad condition Break, use your mind and not your greed Let's connect and then proceed This is something I believe We are one, we're all just people One tribe, y'all One tribe, y'all One tribe, y'all We all one people Let's catch amnesia Forget about all that evil Forget about all that evil That evil that they feed you <laughs> Let's catch amnesia Let's catch amnesia Forget about all that evil That evil that they feed you <laughs> One tribe, y'all we, 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 One tribe, y'all One, one, one people 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 Let's, let's catch amnesia Lord, help me out Trying to figure out what it's all about Cause we're one in the same Same joy, same pain And I hope that you're there when I need ya Cause maybe we need amnesia And I don't wanna sound like a preacher But we need to be one One world, one love, one passion One tribe, one understanding Cause you and me can be 
become one. There is no longer a, a, a physical, physical record store. But we will continue to let the beat rock. Be 
This is WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station, streaming at www.valleyfreeradio.org.